Welcome to the Untold Civil War. I hope you're all enjoying the holiday season. If you haven't seen my Remembrance Day video and or Christmas special video on YouTube, please use the link in the show notes to enjoy our video content. Subscribe to the YouTube channel so you don't miss out on any future videos. Thank you to my patrons on Patreon for supporting the show. All my patrons will be in the running for our holiday raffle for a signed copy of the book WG, and a second winner will get an original CDV of a Union soldier. Want to be in the running? Join the ranks of my patrons on Patreon at the link in the show notes. Now, if you're still doing some last-minute holiday shopping, don't forget to check out the Excelsior Brigade. They have recently acquired some great items for sale, including original CDVs of the Irish Brigade and a Civil War nurse grouping. This is museum-grade stuff, and if you are a collector, you have to check them out. And now, crawl into your Sibley tent, rest your head on your knapsack, and let's delve into some untold Civil War. Welcome to the Untold Civil War. Today I sit with Alexander Rose, famous for his book, Washington Spies, the story of America's first spying, the basis for the AMC drama series, Turn, Washington Spies. He's also the author of one of my favorite books, Men of War, the American Soldier in Combat at Bunker Hill, Gettysburg, and Iwo Jima. But today we're discussing his latest work, The Lion and the Fox, Two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Navy, which may become my next favorite book. So <laughs> we'll see. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. So just to kick this off, I always like to ask sort of the origin story. When did the Civil War bug kind of bite you? When did your interest in the Civil War come about? That's a great question. You know, it was a long time ago. I'll put it that way. Uh, you know, like many, like many writers, you know, you have ideas all the time. And you know, you always write them down. You know, you spend a, you know, put them down in, a, in half a paragraph and you put them into Word or something and then you put it into a folder. And then 98% of the time you completely forget about them because, or you look at them again and you go, was I drunk when I wrote that? That's, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. This is a terrible idea. I wouldn't read this book. So that's the fate of most of these fantastic ideas. But the, the one about the, um, the Civil War spies, I, I think I, I read this, the, you know, mention of it somewhere about these two spies uh, duking it out in, in Liverpool. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting take on the Civil War. That's really interesting. It's a good spy story. It'll make a good kind of sequel to Washington spies, you know, Revolutionary War, Civil War. So I wrote it down. And I think this was about 2008. And I put it into the folder. And I didn't look at it for several years because, you know, I was writing these other books and all this kind of stuff. And then a couple of years ago, I got back and I was looking through the files. And I thought, you know, wow, this is a, this, this, you know, this idea could be a goer. And, you know, from the beginning, I'd, I'd always kind of known the, the angle that I would take on it. I don't know if you uh, remember the old Mad Magazine strip called Spy versus Spy, where you have uh, like the, the, the spy in black and the spy in white, and they just kind of try and outwit and outfox and outdo each other, you know, a bit like Tom and Jerry. And I always had this, the idea of, the, of this one spy trying to maneuver around another and the other one trying desperately to stop him. I don't, I don't, so that was the idea, the sort of the, the concept. Now, the structure of a book is a, is a whole different matter because then you've got to work out how on earth am I going to write this? And I think one of the reasons why I hadn't gone back to this idea earlier is that I'd, I had looked into it and I'd gone, I have no idea what's going on here. It's just so complicated. There are 200 ships being mentioned. It is, it, it's just like this welter of dates and conflicting testimonies and, you know, strange, obscure 
primary resources and so on. They are spies. So how much are they really writing or how much of their secrets are they really telling for you to find, you know? Well, there's actually much more than you think. Um, that That's one of the attractions of it. I'll, I'll get on, we can get onto that in a minute, but you know, but it, it didn't occur to me a couple of years ago, like, okay, I figured out how to do this book. And that is, it's just once, it's just in sort of three phases. You say there's sort of part one called, you know, in my head, the, the runners. Part two was the raiders. Part three was the rams. It was all rather usefully alliterative uh, about the three different types of ships that were that the uh, the Confederate agent was trying to build. Once you had that, then okay, then you've got you. I understand how to write the book. Everything kind of slots into that. So that's how it. And then once we had that, once I had that, then it was it was actually I think it took about ten months, eleven months to write and research it, but we went pretty quickly. Hence the importance of a good structure before you begin. But yeah, as for your other question about how you know how much is there? I mean, that's always another critical factor in deciding what to write about. With the with the Washington with Washington spies, I was very very lucky in that that the whole thing hinged on this uh, library of you know of about 190 copa ring letters to and from George Washington, which had been kept really well, beautifully by the Library of Congress in the Washington papers, but they were all scattered around the place and under aliases. But if you put them all together, you had the kind of the biography of George Washington's private spy ring. With these guys, the union agent, uh, whose name was Dudley, well, he was a consul in Liverpool. And, you know, as you do, his, his job was essentially to file a report, more or less every week, to the State Department, detailing what he'd been up to. So, the, these files, and there were thousands of pages, were in the National Archives in, in just outside of Washington. And I think in a kind of an obscure State Department file called, uh, you know, uh, Letters from Consuls Abroad kind of thing. Well, you know, they have consuls in Naples and Milan and, and also, you know, all around the world. And um, so what I had just before the COVID, uh, uh, COVID broke out, I, I managed to get those digitized by the National Archives. So I had many thousands of pages that had been on microfilm, I think, on my computer. So after that, I, it was really just a matter of reading all of them, which, you know, takes <laughs> takes some time, you know, thousands of pages of these things quickly, uh, trying to build up the story. You know, there's also the Dudley Papers at the Hunting Museum in, in, in California. Uh, and then for the Confederate fellow, you know, he, uh, Bullock, he didn't keep as, he, he didn't keep quite as compendious uh, a number of records. But um, you know, because he destroyed a lot of them. But he did write a very full, very long set of memoirs a couple of decades after the war. And more to the point, he had a he had a very long and detailed correspondence with Mallory, who was the, the guy he reported to, who was the Confederate, well, I'm sure you know this, the Confederate Secretary of the Navy. So detailing what he'd been up to. So there was a, there was a huge amount of stuff. I mean, much more than I actually thought when I first began. So that's so once you have that, that, that you know you've got gold and you just have to mine it and then refine it. And that then then you get the book. Campaign season will be coming back sooner than expected. No time like the present to improve that reenacting Civil War impression. Look no further than the badge maker for your reenacting needs. Painted canteen covers, pipes, watch fobs, core badges, and much more. Link in the show notes. Fantastic. And I, I know it's probably... Took a little bit of doing, a little bit of art there to sort of weave the two stories together and put them on parallel tracks, right? Um, because you're reading the. Well, yeah, that's the trick. <laughs> that's the truth. That's the tough bit. But yeah, it went, it went, but it, it went surprisingly well. I mean, it was just such a, a richness of material, and the story itself is fantastic. 
So once you have that, it's just, you know, this is really, and you, and you, and I also deliberately didn't want to know exactly how it ended or what happened so that when you are writing, it's almost like you're reading it for the first time. You know, I don't know what's going to happen in the next chapter. I have a vague idea, but you know, I like to do bits bit by bit. And so it's, there's twists and turns and surprises and revelations and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, that's what meant that, well, that's what makes history and history books interesting, I guess. You just briefly sort of introduced us to the two main players here. Can you go into their backgrounds a little bit, go a little bit more in depth? One other thing that attracted me about the book was that it was, it was, there were two very distinct, strong characters in it. Very important, I think, when you're trying to write, you know, a really gripping history to be character driven in a way. And, you know, I was lucky. I hit gold. To get back to the question, the first fellow, let's talk, let's talk about the Union Consul, uh, Thomas Dudley. He was uh, the son of a, a humble Quaker farmer from New Jersey. His father died when he was young. Dudley worked on his mother's farm, you know, a fairly modest farm. He was a very, very sort of strict abolitionist, you know, owing to his Quaker faith. I mean, this, he was absolutely rigid about it. And this was going back to the 1840s, 1850s, you know, before it be, you know, became a you know, great, obviously, national issue. And, you know, so much so he just didn't, you know, he just, he, he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk, he would dress himself up and, uh, you know, what he considered to be kind of Southern slave trader outfit, uh, which consisted of a large hat and uh, a couple of guns and, and a whip. And he would, he would go below the Mason-Dixon line and, you know, pretending to be a, a, a slave trader and he would buy up slaves or liberate them somehow or, or whatever. And uh, who'd been kidnapped from, from the north and brought south uh, and he would take them back which you know which was a very risky undertaking I mean if he'd been busted doing this I mean it was you could quite easily disappear let's put it that way you know in the late 18 in mid 1850s and he becomes a lawyer in in you know local local lawyer he puts himself through you know apprentices himself to a local attorney so he's, you know, he's, he's got a good legal practice going on it's not bad um, he throws himself into Republican politics in the 1850s and at the um, presidential convention just, just before the, the the war breaks out, he, he you know he's part of the New Jersey delegation, and he does a little bit of deft wire pulling, smoky backroom kind of deal to make sure that the New Jersey delegation puts its votes behind Lincoln. And you know he helps he helps Lincoln get get nominated. And you know for this signal service, a few months after the war breaks out, uh, Lincoln calls him in, says, "Okay, Mr. Dudley, thanks so much for your great service to me." you know, what would you like? Would you like to be minister to Japan or would you like to be consul to Liverpool? You know, being an ambassador to Japan is a much senior position to consul to Liverpool, but Dudley wasn't a diplomat. He wasn't in the State Department. And more to the point, he just, a few years earlier, he'd survived this this rather, he, he, um, he'd been counted as dead. I think he was brought back from the dead, essentially, you know, in a horrible um, sort of drowning accident where uh, his, the, the ferry he was on went down in icy cold water and he was, he was sort of miraculously revived. So he always regarded himself as having unfinished business. He had this great mission to complete before he died. Aside from that, he needed to be near good doctors because his health had never quite recovered. And, you know, Japan was thought to be quite a long way away. And so, and he also just wanted the, you know, consuls serve like a year or two, you know, abroad, and then they come home. So what the, the plan was, you would just become consul to Liverpool, stamp passports, get drunken sailors out of jail. I mean, the usual stuff that consuls do, uh, have a nice, easy life, and come home about a year later back to his law practice. Easy peasy. Um, un unfortunately, 
he in, inadvertently had just volunteered to man the most critical intelligence posting in the world. And the reason for that is the other guy, uh, James Bullock, who uh, was, you know, Georgian by birth from a, you know, a wealthy, affluent merchant plantation family, you know, went back many generations, you know, big slaveholders. Bullock himself didn't own any slaves. He, he had no property in the, in the South. He, in fact, I think he went to boarding school in Connecticut or something. And so he wasn't at home much. And in his mid-teens, he joins the U.S. Navy as, as an officer, junior, uh, you know, midshipman, I think. And he you know, works himself up the next 20 years or so, you know, up, up, up the ranks. And, uh, and then eventually in the, I think in the early 1850s, he decides he wants to make some money and promotion rank. The promotions are too slow in the U.S. Navy. So he resigns his commission, goes into uh, becoming a... It, working for a private steamship line and he's a captain on the mail lines package lines going from new york to havana or places like that and he's based in new york and unless he spoke to you or something like that you wouldn't even know he was a southerner at all you know, he very rarely went back home didn't have much contact had no property as i said or any interests in the south as he as he wrote in his memoirs and he kept his views to himself you know, it's very it's very difficult to work out exactly what Bullock was thinking because he was the reason why is that he was from the get go from his childhood for various reasons he was very cagey, very cunning, and very careful with his words. Um, he was also you know he was very sly and he was he you know he cultivated this kind of designedly aristocratic demeanor, you know, sort of effortless superiority that kind of thing. Uh, very elegant, knowledgeable worldly that kind of thing so he's completely the opposite from from dudley i mean for instance bullock had a great was very amusing whereas dudley i think lacked any discernible sense of humor what <laughs> whatsoever he's not the world's he's not a great comedian let's put it that way and uh whereas bullock was quite entertaining when he wanted to be and quite waspish but uh you know as when the war breaks out Bullock is on a steamship liner and he he's in New Orleans and he gets recruited into, you know, on a secret mission to go to Britain by by Mallory. And his job is to go build, acquire, commission a Confederate Navy of blockade runners, commerce raiders and advanced ironclads in order to defeat the U.S. Navy at sea and allow the South to continue its war. And so that's that's how he gets that's how he gets recruited because he's, one of the reasons is is that he's quite he's clean. I mean, the North doesn't really know about him. He's not a sort of fire breathing slaver or anything like that. He's this quite quiet, well known, well regarded, highly competent steamship captain. So he's a perfect. He makes for a perfect agent. Very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> no, no, and and seems he also slightly perfect for the job because he knows about ships. He's been on ships. Well, yeah, he's been on ships since he was a, since he was a teenager. He had he and he had worked on the new steamships. There was a there was a great transition at that time between you know the uh, you know uh, uh, steamships and uh, moving away from the age of sail. So he was very familiar. He was very very good at at using steam and familiar with engines. He would also just for uh, you know which came in incredibly useful was that uh, he had dealt with shipyards before in new york because he'd, he for the steamship line he had uh, designed and commissioned a couple of ships including the one that he sailed on so he he knew how to deal with construction and contracts and money and stuff that most captains and sailors didn't know about it was a very it's a very uh, it's like real high level 
project management and he was also very trustworthy with money and so on so again the, all the stuff helped make him the ideal candidate for this very sensitive mission are you writing a civil war novel maybe you're trying to learn about your civil war ancestors perhaps you have a thesis paper on the civil war not sure where to start with your research subscribe to military images magazine and learn about the uniforms the photography the human interest stories of the war link in the show notes so we have our characters here. Do you mind just sort of setting the scene for us here? What is happening geopolitically that sort of kicks off this story? Uh, what happens in England, uh, and again, it's, it, well, Britain rather, is um, the thing that threw off the whole plan. This was supposed to be an easy plan. Bullock was supposed to go to Britain, go to Liverpool, which is the world's leading shipbuilder, built more ships there than the rest of the world combined, and just pick up some ships essentially off the shelf and you know get them to get them to 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 the to uh to the south it should have been it should have been a doddle it should have been easy what throws off the whole thing is is the unexpected british declaration of neutrality uh which comes in at around the same time that lincoln imposed his own blockade of the south this suddenly unexpectedly makes the whole mission really tricky to pull off because now Bullock has to work around the, the British laws on neutrality. The, the, you see, in Britain at the time, there was a very, there was a very vocal, very powerful, very large pro-Confederate uh, group. I mean, you know, the, the, I, I, I'm not, I, I, want, I don't want to say most, but I certainly think that a, a very large number of, say, MPs and, in, and peers in the House of Lords and newspaper editors, you know, just the great and the good and the establishment, were all inherently pro-Confederacy. Not because they were pro-slavery. There was no one who really said that sort of stuff because it had been abolished decades before in, in Britain. It was more that there was, well, there were various reasons, such as there was a kind of sympathy for what was regarded as the underdog, you know, the kind of romantic rebels. This idea that the plantation owners were kind of fellow aristocrats, you know, they're just like us, unlike those vulgar northerners with their industry and their Irish immigrants and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there was also an idea that, um, you know, the South was going to win great generals. It had a lot of elan and high morale. It was going to strike quickly. This whole thing was going to be over. And most importantly, it had a, it had basically the, essentially the world's supply of cotton, which was the, the biggest export. Uh, trade in the world between uh, Liverpool, uh, between uh, the South and Liverpool, which was the center of uh, Britain's cotton industry, which at one point, just to give you some example of how powerful a, a commodity cotton was, you know, something like estimated was about 20% of the British population relied directly or indirectly on the cotton trade. That's how powerful and, 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 and you know, and potent the economy uh, needed to be relying on on southern dixie cotton so there's an assumption that this was you know it's going to be soon after this little spat you know that this was all going to go away and it would be business as usual we get the the cotton going again and it'd be great so again so there's an inherent pro-confederate bias there which bullock is going to exploit and rely on but with neutrality and so there was assumption that britain would at some point kind of in this it was a little bit of a fantasy but it wasn't an unrealistic fantasy that there would be some kind of anglo-confederate alliance you know the royal navy would come in to enforce the the command of the ocean and break apart lincoln's ludicrous blockade which was full of holes and 
ensure the cotton came throwing through. And then with the Royal Navy, between the Royal Navy and the, the elan and, and vigor of the Confederate States of America, you know, the CSA, the, this, the North would soon reach some kind of armistice with the South and this whole unpleasantness would be over pretty quickly. But again, events transpired that that did not happen. And so this, the neutrality, suddenly Bullock has to work around neutrality, which is a, you know, a serious problem. But he gets around it using a, a kind of a legal loophole that he finds in this very old legislation. And again, Dudley, his, Dudley's job is to stop him. Many ask, how was Stonewall Jackson so effective at flanking the Union Army? Well, he was always guided by the maps and signs from Civil War trails. Civil War trails place signs on all those Civil War sites, told and untold, that will help you interpret the battlefields of the war. Be like Stonewall. Check them out at the link in the show notes. And maybe you can explain a little bit for our listeners, because as I understand it, during the Civil War, th there is no CIA, right? There's no, maybe there's no real formal intelligence community as we might imagine it today. So how are these uh, characters working in their intelligence community? How do they get around? It's a good question. People often assume that today's intelligence apparatus kind of applies to the past, and it, it simply doesn't. You find, you, know, you find that during the Revolutionary War and so on. What you, what, essentially, it's, it's almost ad hoc. These are agents, Dudley and uh, Bullock, who are essentially working independently or at least autonomously. I mean, you could say they were one-man dogs. Bullock answered to one man only, and that was Mallory, and he was 3,500 miles away, and it was difficult to get communications through anyway. So for the most of the war, Bullock was left on his lonesome. He could do whatever he wanted. He acted as he thought fit. And, um, you know, he had allies there. He had a, his, his, his sort of dark money financier guy, the running, um, the, uh, you know, a front trading firm. And he, you know, he had, a, he, again, as I said, he had his friends in parliament. He had a lot of, a lot of other alliances with arms dealers and so on. Dudley was consul, but, you know, he, he sort of semi-answered to the minister in London, who was Charles Francis Adams. But essentially, he was left. They were left alone. They were left <laughs> left on their own devices uh, for the most part of the war because they, as you say, they lack that a kind of an intelligence bureaucracy. It just simply doesn't exist in, at, at that stage of 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 the nineteenth century. So they sort of just take it upon themselves to uh, conduct these uh, missions, I guess. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they get their orders, and they're, they're you know they're told, okay, use your initiative, and <laughs> you know, off they go. Uh, and so th that's what that's what makes them interesting. That's why one of the reasons that when they do report, they do report in great, great detail about exactly what they've been doing. This is holiday season. I hope you take the time to give something back. I think it's always important to give back to those who have sacrificed so much in service to this country. You can do that by checking out Polar at the link in the show notes. Donate to Polar and help them organize safe, practical, team-building retreats for veterans battling with separation from the military. Out of curiosity, how much do they know of each other? Uh, it's a good question. I I don't believe they ever met. I never I never read anything where one of them says I met Bullock or you know, Bullock says I met Dudley. I think they just uh, studiously avoided each other. Though Liverpool is a very small world. I mean, they were the U.S. Uh, consulate and Dudley's office were you know they're only a few minutes walk away, and 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 Bullock's um, you know headquarters they're only a few minutes walk away. They they, they I'm, I'm sure they probably saw each other, but they don't want to associate with each other. I mean, Dudley, this, you know, I mean, loathed Bullock, whereas Bullock kind of used to ridicule and mock and belittle Dudley. 
So, I mean, they're not pals or anything like that. <laughs> you know, they, again, they had dealings. It was always, again, it was always this kind of, it was like, a, it's a little bit like sort of Carla and Smiley in in the Le Carre novels, the Tinker Tailor Soldiers, but they're, they're sort of eyeing each other warily across a very large chessboard. One of the other questions I have here is when we talk about the Civil War, oftentimes, for some reason or another, the naval part of the story seems to be relatively untold. Uh, most people, like in your previous book, you know, they'll talk about Gettysburg or they talk about the land battles, but the naval story seems untold. Why, why is that? And how does it feel to sort of be bringing to light one of these naval stories, a slash espionage stories? I don't really have an answer why the naval aspect is, I wouldn't say it's untold. I mean, I'd say it's, again, I, yeah, it's relatively untold. I mean, you could say it's undertold, uh, compared to the land war, you know, I think I just think it's you know it's an older tradition of of land armies of the blue and the gray and Gettysburg and Antietam and all this kind of stuff, and the navy aspect, the naval aspect, has often been kind of lost. You could say the same thing though about most wars. I mean, I think there's uh, you know if you deal with a, a history of, of World War One or the First World War, you know, most of the focus, especially in Britain, for instance, is on the Somme and Passchendaele on the Western Front. They don't really think too much about the early U-boat struggle or, you know, the, the struggle at sea or, or the importance of convoys and things like that. So you can say that about a lot of wars. For some reason, the, the, the land aspect tends to attract the lion's share of attention, which is precisely what attracted me to this story. And then I thought, oh, this is great. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a Civil War book, but... It, you know, there's 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 no one in blue and gray uniforms. It takes place outside of America, and it's and it has to do with the Navy. And but the Navy, you know, the fact is is that the Navy is vitally important. The naval aspects of these things are are, are critical. You know, the, the the fact that Bullock managed to get a, a a swarm of blockade runners and commerce raiders like the CSS Alabama and the CSS Florida and so on to wreak havoc on Union merchant shipping while also supplying I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of regiments worth of, of armaments through through gun running at the center running a kind of a cotton smuggling scheme to to, to finance all of this. And then, uh, you know, you know, was it was it, you know, really permitted the South to continue the war, you know, quite a long, quite, much longer than it, it, it should have in a way. And, you know, every and every time that the South can extend the war, the more likely it is, is that the North will eventually tire and seek some kind of armistice or accommodation. I mean, the South wins by not losing, you see, whereas the North has to win. So again, the naval aspect is extremely in, important to all of this. And it would have been more important if if Bullock had, uh, I don't think there's any big spoiler here, but uh, it had managed to get those ironclads, the Laird Rams, so-called Laird Rams after the Laird's shipyard, had managed to get them out. Um, and these things were designed to, well, ram U.S. Navy ships and just sort of drown them at sea. That would have caused a lot of that would have caused a lot of havoc within the, the U.S. Navy. Uh, that would have been exploited by the South pretty easily. So the naval aspect is is much more important. And again, it's I, I think it'll probably gain gain something over the over the over time. You know, once but I think the land war will always have that kind of you know the, the it would be the main attraction and the naval thing will be the the sideshow. Though that's not quite fair. It's the holiday season and you need access to more season-appropriate programs to watch. History Fix has you covered. 
Learn what does Scrooge mean when he offers Bob smoking bishop. How did the Santa we know become established in the Civil War era? Meet a winter cookie from a 1915 cookbook and see where it is used in historic interpretation. Explore Napoleon's endgame in 1814. Meet two new punch recipes at the sample room. And so much more. Link in the show notes. Well, as you said, with authors... Usually they always have some other plans <laughs> sitting there on their computer in a database. What is the future for you? Well, the future for me is actually um, uh, is is <laughs> I've got another Navy uh, book that I've I've started writing. I just I've just contracted for. I have no idea why I've suddenly got two books about the about navies, but you know it's odd how these things turn out. But this one um, this one is about World War Two, and it's called uh, Hunter Killer, and I just signed for it. A, couple of months ago so i'm working on it but it's essentially uh it's about a uh, two american like it, again it's a bit like the the um this book in that there's two very distinct characters one an intelligence analyst another a kind of an intrepid captain navy captain who want to go out and trap a a german u-boat but they don't want to sink it they want to take it in alive and so they it, that's it's the story of them and one of them is the hunter and the other one's the killer so it's a great uh again i just came across it a couple of months ago and i thought oh you know, there's a story. So that this one, this one will be, um, uh, you know, it'll be like this, you know, short, short, fast, easy to read, you know. Fantastic. I can't wait for for the next book. Um, this one, <laughs> The Lion and the Fox, Two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Navy. Where can people get a copy of the book? Uh, you can buy it in all good bookstores, even even not so good bookstores, I, I hope. Um, there's also uh, some uh, on, uh, small online outlet called uh, Amazon, and uh, which you may have heard of. And, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org and so on. There's also um, I have several plugs in my Substack newsletter, which I, I called Spionage, which I, I deal with, uh, historic, you know, cases of historical espionage from the ancient times to to World War Two, more or less. So I never cease to advertise the book there. So I'm sure you'll find a link, <laughs> a link there. But uh, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's I think it comes out. Yeah, it came, comes out today, actually. So uh, it, it is uh, freely available, as they say. Well, I'll definitely put a link to your website in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this book. I really appreciate it. Well, great. Thanks very, very, very much for having me. Thank you for listening while you shoveled snow, put salt on your driveway, wrote a letter to your family back home while on picket duty, sipped brandy with the rest of the regiment's officers in a commandeered home, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget that for all your graphic design needs, please check out 1863 Designs. They currently have several stickers for sale, including many that reference the movie Gettysburg. As a fan of the movie, I love these stickers. Who doesn't want a sticker of Sam Elliott as Buford saying, Keep a clear eye! Link in the show notes. Hope you enjoy the holidays with your families and stay safe in this cold weather. And tune in next time for our next episode.